0: our seventh study in a, a series of studies that we've been doing on the end times. And if this is your first one here, I'm glad that you're here because uh, this is probably one of the most important. And, and the reason for that is because, uh, you know, the question that keeps coming up as we've been studying is what, why? Why are we looking at this? Why is this important? And there's a lot of answers to that question, but I think that what we're going to talk about this morning is probably the most important, Um, and it has to do with a series of warnings, which are really one warning given in many ways and many places throughout the Bible uh, concerning what it's going to be like in the last days, which I believe uh, we are living in. So concerning a warning, perhaps you heard the story about the uh, naval carrier that was uh, traveling through cloudy waters uh, in the middle of the night, and, and, and as the captain was walking on the deck, he noticed that out in front there was a light that appeared to be another ship that was uh, right in the middle of their course, and he was looking for the, the wavering or the moving of the left to the right to see its course, and when he saw the steadiness of it, he determined that they were, they were headed head-on. And so he he sounded uh, out a, a message to the the ship and identified himself and, and he said, "This is u s naval you know uh, whatever the ship was, and, and he said, "Change your course ten degrees and uh, the the message came back, "No, you change your course ten degrees." and so he said, "You know I am captain you know and he gave his credentials and he said, "Change your course ten degrees and the Shout came back, I'm a seaman second class. Change your course 10 degrees, a lower rank than even the captain. And then the captain responded and he said, Well, I am a destroyer. Change your course 10 degrees. And the cry came back, I'm a lighthouse. <laughs> Change your course 10 degrees, you know. <laughs> but we all can appreciate the value of a warning, of knowing. Uh, that we're on a crash course or on a collision course with something and that unless there is a change of direction, we're headed for imminent danger. And that's the nature of the warning that's given to us by Jesus, by Paul, and by the Spirit uh, as we look at it in the Word. And so, um, you know, you can write these places down, you can turn to them, um, but I'm going to begin in Matthew chapter 24. And a lot of these are just one verse. There's a couple that are a series of verses. But Matthew 24, um, that great sermon that Jesus gave concerning the last days, and in verse 12, he gave this warning. He said that because lawlessness, or the King James says iniquity, it's uncleanness or sin, that because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. The word love is the word agape, which speaks of Christian love. Love that can only come from God. And it says that it will uh, grow cold. Again, in the King James, it says wax cold. And that's a, I like that word a lot better because we all understand the picture of cooling wax. You know, when it's hot in the candle, it's liquid, it's uh, you know, it's. it's Flowing, But when it cools, it slowly gels and then it becomes hardened uh, to a point where there's no movement at all. And that's the picture that he says will happen to the love of many in the last days. And that the reason for that waxing cold is because of lawlessness or the increase, the intensity, the concentration of sin or darkness or iniquity. And so that's the warning that's given by Jesus. The Apostle Paul reminds The churches, including us, of that warning in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In the New Testament book of Thessalonians, again, the context is all about the second coming, the last days. And uh, in verse 3, the Apostle Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, He says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, and he's speaking about the second coming the day of the Lord, that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. The falling away comes first. And that's an interesting thing because Paul takes it even a little bit deeper than Jesus did and he turns it from, you know, a a circumstance or an atmosphere of lawlessness to an event that there will actually be a wave, a tidal wave of apostasy. Apostasy. That there will be many that will fall away from the Lord. They will. They will be people who profess, and you will watch as a church attendance, as uh, you know, even those that profess faith in Christ. You you will watch those things. Demise uh, in rapid succession. If you're in 2 Thessalonians, you can just turn the page to 2 Timothy. Timothy is right after the fact. You might even see 1 Timothy from where you are in Thessalonians. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and let's expand even more. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3 verse 1. Paul says this. He says, but know this that in the last days, perilous or dangerous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. Now watch this, verse 5, because he qualifies the type of person that you're going to see that behavior in. He says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. In other words, that there might still be some form in them where they will say, well, I believe in God, or I'm right with God but yet the demonstration or example of their life is described by everything he said in the previous verses. And then verse 6, For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. If you turn the page again, uh, or just look over in chapter 4, uh, notice what, what, what Paul says, um, verse 3 of chapter 4. He says this, he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, that is, sound teaching, wholesome words, but according to their own desires, that is, that they're being driven not by what God says or what God wants, but by what they want, and then by what they say, But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, that is that they're looking for affirmation in the behavior that they are seeking to to, to live in, having itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. In other words, they will find teachers that will teach what they want to believe that endorses or condones their behavior. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And again, it's all still in the same context of, you know, the, of the perilous times of the last days. And so he gives that warning. Back in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus warned also that it would be like it was in the days of Noah. And to understand what that was like, you look at Genesis chapter 6, you don't have to turn there. But I would encourage you to read that short passage of scripture where it describes what it was like during the days of Noah. The wickedness that filled the earth, the violence, the corruption, the sexual perversion. There's a list of things. The increased demonic activity and people's fascination with it. And that was what was taking place in the days of Noah with an attitude of life as usual. That there will be no interruption. God will not intervene. There is no God. And then in Acts chapter 20, verse uh, 31 The Apostle Paul warns the church in Ephesus while he was there in person, Acts 20-31, and it says this, Paul says, therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So the warning comes up over and over and over and over again within the scripture. Again, Jesus said that that, that during that day, that that those that say the Lord delays His coming, that there would be carnality and brutality amongst them, that that they, they would come upon them as a thief. This warning is given to us about the last days, the deception and the darkness that will come over the world. And I think we're seeing it. I think we're feeling it. I don't know about you, but I feel it myself. I see it out in the world. Uh, you know, the mo- it used to be that when, when you told someone that you were a Christian, they laughed at you, or you know they would uh, brand you, put you in, in a category in their mind as being weird or you know fringe or something like that. But now it's almost there's almost a hostility. You know, you're a Christian. You know, uh, and it's and it's beyond just pushing you to the to the fringes. But now you're you're an offense. You know, and we're seeing this happen. We're watching people turn away. We're seeing those that are justifying sinful actions and embrace uh, this liberal form of Christianity that is not Christianity. You know, it's not what the Bible teaches. And here's the worst part, the scary part, is that none of us, not one of us, can say, it's not going to happen to me. Because if we could say that, then there's no need for the scripture to put these warnings so constantly before us and so it's a real danger and God doesn't give us a warning unless there's a real danger and so the question is as we consider not just the signs of the times that we've been looking at over these past weeks realizing where we're at but feeling it ourselves and knowing that we're in these days how can we be on guard against falling into that deception is there anything that we can do to keep us from being a part of what the Bible's calling here the waxing cold or the falling away or you know the perilous times of those that have a form of godliness but they deny the power of it. How can we as Christians not or you know, just stay the course, so to speak? What can we do? So a couple things to consider, four if you're taking notes, uh, four things that we can do that will keep us on the straight path in these days. And the first one is kind of a Trinity one. It means there's three, three in one. The first number one of four, it's three components, but one outcome. And so if you're, again, taking notes, number one, you could put A, B, and C. A, part of number one, is very foundationally, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Make sure you're born again. Paul, or Peter, wrote to the church, and he said, make your calling and election sure. Are you really in the faith? Do you understand what it means to be saved? It doesn't mean going to church. It doesn't mean carrying a Bible. It doesn't mean having a bumper sticker. It doesn't mean you know, that you're an American. And so therefore, you know, since a, this is traditionally a Christian nation, I am by default a Christian. None of those things make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is that you've come to the realization that you're a sinner and that you can't save yourself But there's a Savior who hung on a cross and was bled out and that his innocent life was laid down on our behalf so that as we put our faith and trust in him and come to him with repentance and humility and prayer, we ask him to save our soul and he saves us by his grace. That's what it means to be saved, to be blood-bought. That our faith is not in our works, our religion, our church attendance, or what we call ourselves, but it's in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. If we're truly saved, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Then, part two of that, which is also, you know, B, which goes along the right side, is this, is to repent of all known sin. See, there's a gospel that's preached today that doesn't ignore the blood, and it doesn't ignore the cross, but it does ignore the call to repent. The first words that Jesus spoke in his public ministry, the first words that Jesus ever preached were, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you'll be hard-pressed to find one instance in the scripture, in the book of Acts, where the gospel is preached without a call to repentance, to turn away from sin. To repent means to change direction. Meaning I was going this way, but I am no longer going. Doing that, I'm turning and I'm going in a totally different direction. And to call yourself a Christian but yet not repent of your sins is to not become a Christian. Because Jesus didn't save us so that we can continue in a lifestyle that caused him the guilt of our sins. But he saved us so that we can be set free from that lifestyle and that we might live a new life in holiness and the fear of God. And so we must repent of sin. And that goes even for the Christian who truly is saved. Because here's what we that walk with the Lord understand. Is that sin runs deep. Amen? (laughs) And for every day of our life that God allows us to continue walking on this world, he is working that old nature out of us continually. And as he uncovers layer after layer of sin, it means that we must live in a lifestyle in a mindset of repentance. And by that I mean this is that as the Lord reveals to you sin in your life and in your heart, and he might do that as a particular sin 30 years after you've been walking with the Lord, is that we stay in a place and an attitude of saying, Yes, Lord, I agree with you. That sin. Get it out of my life. I repent of it. See, when we resist the Lord, that is, he puts his finger on something in our lives, but he found an affection, he found something, that, a, a root that we enjoy and he puts his finger on it and he says, this, this is next. And we say, I'm not listening to that one. Lord, let's talk about a different root. Let's go somewhere else. Listen, don't resist the Lord. You guys know and I know in my own life and you know in your life the things that God has his eyes on right now. Those things, those areas of your life that you know he's got, he's got it in the crosshairs. He wants to take them out. But we have a tendency to ignore it. We can just say, you know what, Lord? (laughs) I've got a thousand other things I'm listening to your voice about. I'm not going to listen to your voice about that. Be careful. You're in a dangerous place. Because oftentimes when you resist the Lord, he backs off. He's a perfect gentleman. Don't resist the Lord. When he brings something to the forefront, repent of it. Get it out. And it's that easy. 1 John 1.9. Remember this. That if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To forgive means that he pardons. To cleanse means that he breaks the power of that sin. He removes the poison. And it comes how? By confession. When we agree with God and say, yes, Lord, what you're saying is sin, is sin in my life. I agree with you by the power of the blood and the name of Jesus. Get it out of my life. God will hear that prayer and he'll answer it. And that sin will be forgiven. Do you understand? Don't resist God. Repent. And the number three part of number one is then be baptized with the Holy Spirit. To be empowered by God to do his will. That's what it means to be baptized with the power of his Holy Spirit. That is the birthright of every child of God. It isn't an elusive thing that's only given to a select few But Peter said on the very day that the Spirit was poured out that this promise is for you and for your children and as many as are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. But what will keep a person from being empowered by the Spirit is if they resist God as he seeks to have free course in their life. If you're hanging on to things, even a bent theology, You won't receive the baptism or the empowering of the Spirit. But if you do receive the power of the Spirit, then you're going to be serving the Lord, and you're going to be fervent in spirit. And that's going to keep you on the straight and narrow path. You're going to be serving God, and when you're serving God, it's extremely hard to be drawn away into sin. I found that to be true in my own life. So be baptized with the Spirit. So that's number one of four. Number one is believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, and be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They're all one. And if that's true in your life, if those things are continually happening, then you're in a good place. Number two of four ways that we can avoid being swept away in these last days is, this is an important one, remove every ungodly influence from your life. In the Old Testament book of Genesis, we read the account of one of the sons of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons They became the 12 tribes of Israel, the heads, the fathers of the tribes, the patriarchs they're called. And one of those sons, one of those patriarchs was Judah. One of the most important because Jesus descended from the tribe of Judah. And so Judah had a calling, he had a purpose, he was supposed to be a godly man. He had a godly heritage, his grandfather was Abraham, his father was Jacob. But Judah got involved with a friend named Hiram who was an Adullamite. He was a Canaanite. He was a Gentile. And that's who Judah chose to traffic or company with. And Judah led him, uh, what's his name again? Hiram. Hiram led Judah down a bad path. He got involved with a Canaanite woman. He got involved with some questionable things. He ended up in prostitution making a big fool of himself, of his father's house, and shaming himself, bringing bringing himself, his his whole thing, down to nothing. And where did it start? It started with ungodly influence. It started because he was best friends with someone who wasn't influencing towards the kingdom, but towards the world. And that's what happened to Judah uh, because of it. The things in our lives, whether they be people that we're around, that we, I'm not saying that you should, break off every friendship with someone who's not saved. That's not what we're called to do. But if the people that you're closest to in this life that you draw from and that you fellowship with, koinonia, you join soul strings, if those people are worldly, carnal, unsafe people, then you are going to gravitate in that direction. We become like who we're around. That's a general law of life. It just happens that way. But it isn't just the people, it's also other influences. We're a society that's largely influenced by media. Things we watch on television, things we listen to on our uh, radio or on our iPod, in the car, news, things that we uh, watch on TV, all of those things are an influence in our lives. They speak into our lives and they influence where we go. And those are the things that are responsible for bringing us into a view that is sub-Christian. In other words, it isn't often that a Christian just changes their view and says, I don't believe in God anymore. But what does happen is that as those influences come in to our lives, they alter our views ever so slightly. So wherein something that you know, is biblically sound in our mind, now we look at it a little bit, you know, gray. It's not black or white anymore. Now it's, this is just kind of gray. It's not, it's not as serious. You ever, you ever see a brick wall that's 100 years old? When you see a brick wall that's 100 years old, you can tell it's 100 years old because the grout a lot of times is worn away. The edges of the bricks are rounded where they were once, you know, uh, solidly squared off. And you can just say, hey, that brick wall has seen a lot of storms. And that's what can happen to a a Christian's mindset, a Christian's resolve. Is that as the world constantly weathers away what we are and what we believe, our squared edges become rounded. And we can become slightly weakened. The integrity of the strength of that foundation can be rocked a little bit. And especially in these days where things are so bad. I mean, you watch a primetime sitcom. And you just make that a regular habit. Someone said something interesting the other day. They said, if all you ever did was watch TV and you never went out in, in the world, and all you did was watch TV, you would think that most people are gay. That would be your, you know. And, and, and I, I don't really watch TV. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I mean, even I know that. <laughs> you know, it, just watching commercials, you pick that up. See, and that has an effect on us. When we're when we're constantly being hit with that, ever so slightly, our resolve becomes weakened, and we think, well, you know, maybe that's not such a big deal. Yeah, everybody uses drugs. Yeah, nobody nobody courts and then gets engaged and then gets married and then consummates the, the vows. Nobody does that. That's, that's unreal. God knows that nobody, and see, see how that can just creep in? And now the common practice of what everybody does becomes, you know, hey, this is normal and this is acceptable. And that can happen to us. And there's a danger in it. It's part of the warning. Why does the love of many wax cold? Because iniquity will abound. That's what Jesus said. And so the ungodly influence in our life, it plays a part. You know, it's, uh, the Bible talks about the deceitfulness of sin. And sin is deceitful. It, it lies to us. Because sin never comes and says, hey, I'm here to kill you. I want to destroy you. Please let me into your life. It says, no, I'm good. I'm pleasurable. It lies. And then once it's in, then it does its damage. Uh I, I've, t- I've used a lot of Mike Tyson illustrations with you guys because I, I was fascinated with his career, you know. And I remember watching uh, a couple of years ago, watching his career fight by fight, and they would have the interviews and t- all the different things that happened. And there was one interview where they were talking to him when he was really at the height, where he was just unstoppable, you know. Guys would run away from him in the ring, you know. It was it was wild. And, 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 you know, guys were starting to figure out how to go four or five rounds with him, you know, before he hit that, get, land that one punch that would just end it, you know. And they were interviewing about that. They said, well, you know, what's it like for you now that you have to actually fight, you know, four or five rounds or something like that? And he goes, oh, he, he, you know, he goes, oh, it's no big deal. You know, he had that, that, you know, Mickey Mouse voice. It didn't make any sense with that, body and power you know but he, he would say he would say oh that doesn't bother me he said that doesn't bother me at all he said you can run you can you can dodge and weave but this is what he said and I'll never forget this line he said but I know eventually I'm gonna get you I'm gonna get you and, and that's exactly what it was like if you ever watch Mike Tyson fight he would just go he would go he would go and then at, at the at the one moment you least expect it boom he'd get you and that's what sin does you can watch a thousand sitcoms and you could say oh no no this isn't gonna affect me you can listen to talk radio a thousand hours a week. This, it's not going to get me. It's not going to change my worldview. I'm, I'm set. But listen, at one point, it will get you. It will get you. Something will strike a chord and you'll say, well, and it'll cause you to just, well, God is. Be careful. Remove every ungodly influence from your life. So important in these days. Number three, continue in the word of God. John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. Jesus said this. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. He qualified a disciple of his or a follower of his as one who continues in his word. The the word of God is not something that we read just on Sundays or that we compartmentalize into a segment of our lives as though Christianity is one box, one part, one area, but my work is another, my operations in the world are another, my family life is another, my recreation is another. That's not a disciple of Christ. But a disciple of Christ is one who continues in the Word, meaning that the Word of God is what governs and dictates every area of our lives. It isn't just a subpart, but it's all. It's the root of all. And so the Word of God isn't something that we entertain on a moment basis as we go from church service to church service, but it's something that we continue in constantly. Psalm chapter 1, it says, Blessed is the man who meditates in the Word of God day and night. He shall be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water. A tree does not stay rooted in the soil only on Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, or at particular devotional intervals in between. A tree is constantly rooted in the soil, and from that, it flourishes and bears fruit that lasts. And that's the way we're to be. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you're my disciples. And he said, the result of that is that the truth will then make you free. It doesn't say set you free. That would be instant. But to be made free is a process. And that implies that we must continue in it. And the word of God works. It sets us free. As we continue in the word, we grow. Line upon line builds precept upon precept within our hearts, which causes us to understand truth more and more, which causes us to know the Father closer and closer, which causes us to be transformed and conformed into his image on a daily basis. And as that happens, we're set free from the shackles of this world, from the pulling cords of our sin, from the influence of ungodly things. We begin to see with clearer light and understand what's going on around us and why. The spiritual war becomes very evident. See, it's We grow. But you can't do that apart from the word of God. It's impossible. God ordained it to be impossible. You cannot grow in the Lord apart from the word of God. We need the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3. You were there, maybe you still have a finger there. But chapter, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. Now remember, we already read verses out of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Remember, in the last days perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, rude, disobedient, unthankful, unholy. You know, you get the idea. That's all 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 3. At the end of the chapter, as he's talking about how to resist that, he says this, 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. If you have an NIV Bible that says God breathed, it means that God breathed it. He literally spoke it through his breath into existence, all scripture. How much of scripture? How about Genesis chapters 1 through 11? How about Exodus 20? Numbers 13? Daniel chapter 9? Matthew 14? From Genesis to Revelation, all scripture is breathed by God. It's the very word of God. And then he says this, and he says, and it is profitable for doctrine, that's teaching, For reproof, believe it or not, we need to be reproved. Did you know that? For correction, we need to be corrected. For instruction in righteousness. Why? Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so the word of God is what teaches us, instructs us, reproves us, corrects us, and perfects us. That we might be complete. It brings us from what we are to what we're supposed to be. And it's so important that we uh, stay in the word. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is living and powerful. It's alive. It packs a punch. And that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce and divide between the soul and the spirit. That's the emotions and the heart of God, and that's an important distinction. A distinction between our feelings, our soul, our mind, our will, and our feelings, that's our soul, and the spirit. What does God actually say? But the word of God is what discerns that. Lord, this direction I'm going, is it something that I'm just feeling? Is it an impulse of my soul? Or is this what your spirit wants? It's the word of God that makes that distinction. It pierces and divides between the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, And it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The word of God reveals what's going on in here. Whether it's right or wrong. But without the word of God, I'm left for my own evaluation of those things. And thus I'm in error, automatic. And so the word of God is so essential. We cannot expect to survive and do well in any time. Without the word of God, much less in the last days when the Bible says that the wave of darkness is going to sweep so strongly. We need to stay in the word of God. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, final word on this point, and then we'll move to number 4, 4 and final. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now, when you're born again, an interesting thing happens. The spirit of Christ moves inside your heart. Now, it would be nice if the spirit of Christ immediately and once for all crucified that old nature that was in us before Christ came in, but he doesn't. Until we go to heaven, those two things coexist side by side in one house in our body. Think about it. The vile old man that's corrupt according to its sinful ways coexists with the perfect Christ within our hearts. And it's been well said that there is, inside every heart, there are two articles of furniture. There is a cross, and there is a throne. And it's like musical chairs. Somebody always sits on one or the other. So if your flesh, your old man, is sitting upon the throne and calling the shots, ruling your ways, then where does that put Christ? On the cross. But if Christ is on the throne, then where does that put your flesh? On the cross, where it should be. And we choose That's the funny part, is that we choose who's on what. Are we going to let Christ reign, or are we going to let our flesh reign? And so that's the the dilemma that we're in. Now watch this. He says that the two things, lust fight against each other, but he says, verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, then you are not under the law. Now he gives us the character profile of those two people, the flesh and the Spirit. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are these, adultery adultery, Fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. In other words, if those are the things that mark your life, then that's a good indication of who's in control. If that's what's coming out of you in any degree, then the flesh is sitting on the throne. And then he says, Uh, just as I told you in times past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But now verse 22, the other side. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. See that word crucified? It implies the cross, doesn't it? Where does the flesh belong in our lives? Upon the cross. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, take up your cross and follow me. And if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Now, skip down with your eyes to verse uh, 7 of chapter 6. The context hasn't changed. And notice what Paul says. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows... That he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So there's two parts inside this vile, wretched heart of mine the part that carries the old man, me, and the part of the new man, Christ, the Spirit in me. One of those two things is going to thrive, and the other is to die. And I determine which one it is based on where I sow seed. That's what Paul is telling us here. In other words, if you sow to your flesh, you're going to reap corruption from your flesh. Now, there's an interesting thing about sowing and reaping that all of us understand. My daughter went and harvested our sunflowers uh, from the garden. They're dried up, bent over, hanging there. You know, they, the, the, they could barely hold up under the, you know, the weight of the thing now. And so she went out and she cut the things out. Now, you open up a sunflower And there's thousands of sunflower seeds in there. Where did all that come from? One seed. One seed produced a thousand more. Eight sunflower seeds, 8,000 sunflower seeds came from eight seeds. And that's the law of sowing and reaping. The law is that you are going to reap a multiplicity beyond what you've sown. And if you've sown corruption in your flesh, just eight seeds, then the corruption that you're going to reap is going to way exceed what you've sown. They've sown to the wind, Jeremiah said, and now they are reaping the whirlwind. You never get back just what you sowed. You get back exponentially more. However, if you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap of the Spirit. And what that means is this, is that as you day by day continue in the word of God, like Jesus said. Meditate in it day and night. Let it be the foundation of all that you do, not just your church life, but your home life, your recreational life, your work life, your family life, your thought life, what you take pleasure in. When you let the word of God become the root of all of those things, you're continually sowing to the spirit and you're always gonna reap a thousandfold more than what you sow. What does that mean for our lives in 15 years? or in 30 years if the Lord doesn't come back, if we continue to lay down the seed of the Word of God in our heart day by day and feed that seed that's in us, what's going to happen? What are our lives going to look like? What kind of fruit are we going to bear? What kind of brightness are we going to be emanating? What will Jesus Christ look like having grown up in us like that for that amount of time? And so the encouragement is continue in the Word of God. Don't give it up. Don't say, well, it's it's archaic. It doesn't apply to this day and age. Continue in the word of God. And if you continue in the word, you're going to do all right in these days that that are upon us. But if you give up on it and you say, well, it's just easier to relax, to veg out and just, hey, who cares? Another episode of two and a half men or whatever it might be. and It's no big deal. It's just laughing. It's human. Listen, you're so into your flesh. Does Jesus want to watch Charlie Sheen? Would he, if he was there on the couch with you, be like, "Hey Lord, check this out. This is a good one." You'd be like, "Oh, uh, what channels? TBN again? Do you do you like TBN?" <laughs> <watch> <laughs> 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 no. Oh, you want to go read? Okay, <laughs> you know. Funny thing to think about. Number four. I think this trumps them all. And what we said so far are good. Those are good things. Hey, believe in the Lord, be baptized with his spirit. So good, so important, necessary. Remove every ungodly influence in our lives. Yeah, it's essential. It's good. Continue in the word of God. I mean, these things are priceless words from his spirit to us, but this one trumps them all. And here it is, number four, fall in love with the Lord. Fall in love with the Lord. And here's why this one trumps them all is because if you get this one, the other three are automatic automatic. What is the greatest commandment? The young man said as he came to Jesus. He asked the question, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment in the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And he said, the second is just like it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said this, he said, on these, these two things hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, love is the fulfilling of the law, that if you love God with all your heart, mind, and strength, you're never going to worship an idol or make an image or profane the Sabbath or take his name in vain. You're never going to do those things, breaking the first four commandments, if you love the Lord. If you love your neighbor as you love yourself, you're not going to steal from him. You're not going to dishonor your parents who are your neighbor that you love as you love yourself. You're not going to murder or commit adultery or covet. Because if love is the the, the guiding light that that drives your relationship with someone else, then you're not going to do those things. It's automatic. And so if you fall in love with the Lord, those other three things, removing ungodly influence, continuing in his word, believing and being filled with his Holy Spirit, those things are going to be automatic. It's going to happen. Now, this is our defense because if we love him, if we love the Lord, then he's going to be our passion. I mean, that what do what are we passionate about? We're passionate about what we love. And when we're passionate about him, then automatically we're going to be seeking him. The things of him will be in tune to him. We're listening to him. So you say, well, how, how do you do that? Because... You know, love seems so elusive, doesn't it? I mean, we have the ability to hate. We have the ability to be angry. Those things just come so naturally. But the ability to love, where does that come from? One answer. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. And it's as we allow his love to influence our lives that we then have the power to reciprocate that love back to him and also to spill it out over on others. We can't love the Lord unless we first are loved by Him. To experience His love, to sit in His love, to recognize, it, to meditate on it, to drink it in, to receive it, to believe it. And as we do then, we have the ability to give it back. We can know Him, we can trust Him, and we can walk with Him. And to walk with Him, what did Paul say? He said, walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. To love the Lord is to walk with the Lord. Think of Enoch, 365 years old, you know, one of the uh, descend, immediate descendants of Adam there. And, you know, it says for 300 years, he walked with the Lord. Can you imagine day by day, growing with the Lord, walking with him moment by moment to experience his presence. And in, in that, we experience his love and in experiencing his love, you can't help but love him in return. And then to give that love away to others. How do we stand in these days? Hebrews chapter 12, what last scripture? Not a point, just a closing thought. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape, and now that's not me, that's the spirit that he's talking about. He says, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth when the law was given is what he's talking about, Exodus 20, the, 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 the ground shook when God spoke. It says, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake, not only the earth, but also the heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. And that there's a shaking that's coming. That's the, you know, the, the, the summation Of what he's talking about in these last days. That there is a shaking coming. God is going to shake up this earth. And in shaking it up. He's saying that there are things that are not going to remain. That's the apostasy. Those that wax cold. Those that fall away. Those that are carried away. With strange doctrines. They'll be shaken. When the shaking comes. But the reason for it God says. Is that the things that cannot be shaken. May remain. Do you understand that? See, the shaking is not what causes the falling away. All the shaking does is it reveals what could be shaken. You understand? When, when, a, when a wind blows, right? If you're walking, if a group of people are walking by a cliff and a wind blows, okay? The wind doesn't knock them off, though the wind is what carries them off, but what the wind does is it reveals who is walking too close to the edge, You understand? Because everybody's going to be moved, but only the ones that were standing on the edge are going to fall off. There's a shaking coming. So where are we standing? That's the question. Are we standing in the right place? Are we in a place where, where we'll be caught up in it? Listen, men, in these days, so important that we're filled with the Spirit. So important that the ungodly influence is not weathering the brick wall of our foundation. So important that we continue in the word of God day by day, sowing to the spirit and that we're truly in love with the Lord. What's our motivation? Do we love the Lord with all our heart, mind, and strength? So may God give us wisdom. May we stand. May our church shine as a light in a dark place in these days. And may we be ready for his return that it wouldn't come on us like a thief. In Jesus' name.